0: Wow, how do you follow that? Thank you, Ian. Um, We've reached um, the last doing word in our little series of four. Um, As Ian said, it's the end of our series. We've been uh, saying that Christianity is a new life, and that that new life consists of a new identity, a new relationship, A new purpose. We've represented those ideas by standing, walking, and fighting. This afternoon, we're coming to think about Christianity being all about a new destiny. And uh, I'm characterizing that whole idea by the metaphor of running. So that's the fourth uh, big word that we're going to be thinking about. Now, this is very relevant uh, for me, as you'll know, because earlier this year, I ran a marathon for the first time, age of 44, never really been a runner, but a friend challenged me to do it. It's the worst thing when a friend challenges you to do something. And uh, and it was amazing, but all the way through my, the training, the, the, the question that was on my lips, having never done this before, was will I make it to the end? I mean, you were sick of hearing that, I'm sure. Will I make it to the end? I had injuries. Um I remember, um, some of you know Jodie and her husband Ian, they're big runners, and Ian said to me, as you clock up the miles, you clock up the injuries, and uh, never a truer word was spoken about running, and even close to the race itself, I remember sitting in my physio's room with a long face, and uh, I'm wondering with him whether it was worth even starting the race, because I wasn't sure I could do it. and in the end, uh, a few of us did, and we were very pleased to get to the end. It took us about a fortnight, but we did get to the end. And that's what it felt like, anyway. Well, you'll know that in several places in the Bible, the idea of running a long distance race is used as a great picture of the Christian life. And we read one here in Hebrew, Sam read to us. Um, and the writer to the Hebrews uh, says in verse 1 there, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. The encouragement there is to keep going in this race to the very end. Don't give up. Don't let tiredness make you stop. Run well, persevere, and complete the race that's marked out. This is a race that's not a sprint. It doesn't require speed. What it requires is stamina. And uh, to get to the end, there, there needs to be a great deal of determination. Now, whilst all of that is very true and does sound quite inspiring, something, I'm afraid, nags away at me with this kind of talk. And um, the, the problem is, I think, that it is very easy for us to misunderstand and think the Bible is saying something that it isn't saying. And if, if I'm honest, I, I've really struggled this week to put this together for a number of reasons. So can I, can I share with you first of all two or three reasons why that I've struggled with this and, and hopefully that will help you to see where I'm coming from. So first of all, I want to ask the question, what is it that's distinctively Christian about this? Um, The truth is that this kind of talk sounds like moralistic talk. Try harder. Be strong. Whatever Whatever your goal is in life, you could apply the idea of long distance running to it. Be determined focus on the goal. Tell yourself that it'll be worth it in the end, despite the sacrifices that you've got to make now. You could motivate a businessman like that, you could motivate a sports person like that. In religious terms, a Muslim or a Jew or a Sikh or whatever, could come here and preach that message today and tell you to run your race to the end. And I I could have a day off. Even an atheist Could use this kind of analogy to inspire you to live for the good of others. So my first problem with this is, what is it that's distinctively Christian about this? Um, And I think we need to be very careful when we, certainly I'm trying to be careful when I preach, not to sound like anybody could say this. (laughs) What I want to give you is something that is distinctively biblical and Christian. The second problem is, is a more subjective one that relates to you. There is also real danger that you might think, yeah, 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 I've heard all this before. You're going to talk about heaven and completing the race and having perseverance, and already you're thinking, blah, 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 blah. I've heard it all before, and, I, and I've tried it all before. This determination and willpower thing, and it didn't actually work. I wouldn't like to tell anyone that. But secretly, I hear your passion and enthusiasm. It all sounds very inspiring, but it also feels a little bit lame. This sounds like pie in the sky when you die. And it turns me off a little bit. Been there, not done that. And don't want the T-shirt. So if, if that is you, today... And you, I, I genuinely don't want you to just zone out and think, I've heard all this before, I, I could write this script. Um, I don't want to be lame in that way. Number th- problem number three, we're piling them up here. Problem number three is, is this, that I think in our modern culture there is a great deal of confusion as to what discipline and self-control actually is. So, for example, a 100 years ago, I think people would say something like, and probably in the accent that Ian started the service in, uh, what you need to do is control your emotions. You need to have a stiff upper lip, and don't let your emotions get the better of you. Use your brain. Think rationally. Be logical. And do not allow those pesky emotions to make you unstable. Be disciplined by thinking straight. Some people do still talk like this now. But I think if we're honest, we can see a massive change in our culture. Now, people say, your whole issue is not the need to control or even suppress your emotions. That is precisely your problem. What you need to do is to understand your emotions, to manage them and learn to express them. Don't be emotionally stunted. Learn to be emotionally intelligent. Find your heart. Listen to the real you. Follow your feelings and they'll lead you to the truth. Who's right? Should you follow your head or your heart? answers on a postcard. He, he's right. what What is self-discipline in the end anyway? What does self-control look like? Should you be ruled by logic or passion? So, anyway, for all those three reasons, I think this could be a terrible end to our series. So, hopefully it won't be. But there, So there are three things I've been grappling with. Boy, this has caused me some... Uh, some, some struggle and angst to so we're going to talk about running we're going to talk about persevering we're going to talk about destiny but I don't want you to hear me preaching willpower I don't want you to hear me moralising you and telling you to try harder and I don't want to be lame so that you zone out and I don't want to fall into trap of saying things that any motivational speaker could say without even referring to the Bible. So, what do we do with that? Well, there's a humongous, ginormous, massive clue right here in this passage as to where we're going to go with this. So, I, I hope this makes sense to you. The clue that I want to pick up on is in verse 2. This is what makes this distinctively Christian. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He ran a race. You would think, in some ways, it didn't end that well. The end of the story did. But he ran a very, very hard race. How did he run? Why did he run? Well, verse 2 tells us. He is the author and perfecter of of our faith, who for the joy sat before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There is a humongous clue. This is not motivational talk that anybody could give. For Jesus what I want to say to you today is it is all about joy. That is the thing that makes this distinctively Christian. This is not lame or boring. It isn't moralising. This is about death conquering, cross enduring, persevering, effervescent joy. A few years ago, the well-known rap artist uh, Sean Coombs, also known as Puff Daddy, or Puff Diddy or P. Diddy or whatever he felt like being called at the time released a song called It's All About The Benjamins anybody familiar with that song? (laughs) I'll give up on this it's all all about the Benjamins why did he call it that? this was a reference to a hundred dollar bills because in America a hundred dollar bill has a picture of Benjamin Franklin on the front or the back I don't know which way around they go So you would call a hundred dollar bill a Benjamin. So P Diddy sang this song, it's all about the Benjamins. What does he mean? It's all about the money, the bling. It's all about the trappings. And despite the bling, there's a note of protest in that for sure. For many black people, the sense of frustrated opportunity, ongoing poverty, is a very real one. And the idea that life consists in showing to the world that you can overcome every obstacle and be successful. And what is the sign that you have escaped and overcome and become successful? It's all about the Benjamins. It is all about the status symbols of worldly success. The way to be happy, to get control, to get status, to be cool all about the Benjamins how would you finish that sentence what about your life? it's all about the dot 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 would you say it's all about the Benjamins like P. Diddy according to the writer to the Hebrews for Jesus here running the race persevering to the end fighting for something worth fighting for, listen, it's all about the joy. That is the key to the whole deal. If anyone in history ever needed self-control, it was Jesus here. He knew he was going to die. He knew he was going to be taken out of the city, hung on a Roman cross. Our text here says that he scorned its shame. It's like he laughed in the face of it. Death, ha! I laugh in the face of death. Scorn it. It is a light thing to me. Why? For the joy set before him. It is all about the joy. The key is not willpower, but joy power. Let me just take you briefly to another place in the Old Testament to illustrate this. In some ways, quite a humorous story. In the book of Genesis, they're introduced to a man called Jacob. Jacob was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he was a character. He ripped off his older brother and had to run away to his uncle's house. But he met his match because his uncle was more of a con man than he was. When he got to his uncle's house, he fell in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel. He fell in love with Rachel It sounds, when you read the Bible, that she was a looker, and he liked her, and he wanted to marry her, but Laban, the uncle, was a shrewd businessman. Let me uh, read to you from Genesis chapter 29 and uh, verse 16. Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes. But Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter Rachel. Imagine that. Imagine that for wages. I'll work for you for seven years because I love Rachel so much. Laban said, it's better that I give it to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel. This is the point. But they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Do you get that? Seven long years. Seemed to him like a week. Why? Was it willpower? We're going to try hard for seven years be desperate. No. Joy power. It seemed to him like a few days. Why? Because his eye was on the prize. He loved her. It was worth it. We might say about Jacob, for the joy set before him, he endured the work Because at the end, he had Rachel to look forward to. What about Jesus? What was the joy that was set before him? Have you ever thought about that? What was the joy that was set before Christ? Let me read a quote to you. This is uh, from American author Tim Keller. Jesus must have set his heart on some kind of Rachel. Jesus must have set his heart on some beauty. And it was the passion of his heart, because it was the passion of his heart. He was able to even endure the cross. That is the secret of his self control. What was the passion of Jesus' heart that gave him self control? What was it that he wanted? What was it that he didn't have before the cross that he would have wanted? You say, what could that have been? It couldn't have been the Father. He already had the Father. It couldn't have been heaven. He already had heaven. It couldn't have been the command of the universe because he already had the command of the universe. What was it that he didn't have before the cross? That he had after it? What was it that he set his heart upon? What was his Rachel? What was it he wanted? There is only one thing you and me. We, we were his Rachel. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is what makes Christianity unique. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, loved you and me enough to endure a shameful, agonising death on a cross to save us. That is the value that he places on your life. I want to uh, summarise the uniqueness of Jesus and the uniqueness of Christianity, if it's possible, with two words. I have a slide It's all about the joy. The next slide. I haven't got any others, so that's it now. You've got got all I've got to give. (laughs) Here's Christianity summed up in two words Jesus was utterly secure, he knew the joy of intimate friendship with his Father. He he didn't have to die on the cross to earn that. He already had it. Utterly filled with gladness, joy, light, power. Utterly secure. But there's something else about Jesus that is truly stupendously glorious. And that is that he is not selfish. He longs to share with others. And the cross... You could summarize the uniqueness of Jesus, the uniqueness of Christianity by those two words, security and sharing. So the question is really then, how do I run in life and through life like a Christian? How does my new destiny shape my life? Well, the reality is that because of Jesus, you can run Securely. You can run securely. You don't need to fight for it. You don't need to earn it or pay for it. Jesus gives you Himself for free forever. You couldn't be more secure. In Christ you have forgiveness, complete acceptance. He gives you his power and peace and love and joy. Do you feel unworthy? This isn't even about that. This isn't about whether you deserve it or not. The glory of the Christian gospel is that Christ loves the unworthy the undeserving, the broken, the bruised, the dysfunctional, the sinful. You are his Rachel. He made light of the cross to win your life. The truth is, he is utterly secure and he loves to share. He, we might say he loves to love. And Jesus is the one who can crown your life with love and joy and dignity. So in Christ, you can be secure. He is secure. He wants to share it so that you can be secure. I think that means, secondly, that in Christ, not only can you run securely, but you can run free. Jesus gives freedom. All the things What I mean by that is to be set free of the crippling treadmill of trying to gain approval in other things which are uncertain and often end in disappointment. If Jesus gives ultimate acceptance and ultimate approval he actually releases you from the crippling fear of not being approved or of pursuing approval in other lesser things. Christ is your reward. And he will not fail you. You are not on the outside struggling to get in. He is the one who brings you in. If you have Christ, you have everything. Keller says, when you see Jesus enduring because you are his beauty and delight, you will be able to endure because he will become your beauty and delight. The thought and the knowledge that he loved you like that will make you love him like that. The thought that he made you his beauty will make him your beauty. Everything that you pour into worshipping him will multiply and rebound to you with interest on it. I can remember when my good friend Ian, sitting at the back there, became a Christian. He left this church with a look of terror on his face. Twenty minutes later, he came back in. And he said something along the lines, I've never forgotten the tone of this. He said to me, I've given my love to Jesus, but what came back was ten times more than I gave to him. You can never outgive him. You can never put Jesus in your debt. He is the fountain of every kind and type of kindness. So in Christ you can run securely but you can also be free of the crippling fear of trying to seek approval in other places. There's another freedom here as well though. I don't, I don't want to dwell on this but sometimes in life if, if you're like me, you, you wonder how, how can I conquer this problem? This habit? How can I overcome this issue? The answer is, not more willpower, but more joy power. The answer is never to suppress your desires, but to replace those low desires with better and higher ones. You can't find happiness by cutting off your emotions or by blanking out your mind. You need to engage both your mind and heart In pursuing joy in the ultimate place it can be found, which is in Christ. We try to conquer sins by self control. We don't realise often that these are matters of the heart. We need to replace low desires with bigger, better, supreme ones. And thirdly, I think in Christ you can begin and continue to run generously this paradigm here for Jesus also reflects how the gospel works in our life, he is secure and shares that so that we can be sure secure why? so that that overflows and we share it with others you don't have to fight for what you can get now you don't have to hoard and store goodwill in case it runs out. You can give yourself without reserve in joy to serve other people. In Christ you have security, freedom and the freedom to be generous to other people. That isn't lame. I don't think that's moralizing. It is the joy-fueled grace of God. Let me me try and illustrate this from the life Paul you know the Apostle Paul he wrote most of the New Testament to start with he was a very religious man striving to please God by doing his absolute best and he made, a, he made quite a good fist of it supremely intelligent and moral upstanding man when he heard about Christianity his zeal to be religious made him hate Christians with a passion And he persecuted the church. He had people put in prison. He had people stoned to death for being Christians. He thought he was fighting for God. When all the while he was fighting against God. And hiding behind his religion. One day Christ met him. On the road to Damascus. His Damascus Road experience. I don't know. I mean, if you portray this as a cartoon, you know, Paul's going to Damascus to kick more Christians' heads in. And Jesus drops off the sky into the middle of the road, on the road to Damascus. What you're expecting in the cartoon is for Jesus to go, there you go, Paul, take that. That's what you deserve. What does Christ say to Paul? He says to him, why do you persecute me? When I love you. You would think Christ would punish him, but he loved him, forgave him, and poured out his grace into him and upon him. Paul was Jesus' Rachel. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross to save men like Paul. I think Paul never recovered from the shock of that encounter and the joy let me read to you this is Paul giving his little autobiography I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me faithful appointing me to his service even though I was once a blasphemer a persecutor and a violent man I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Does that sound lame to you? He's excited. He's full of joy. Christ has forgiven him and saved him. And I think the whole tone of Paul's life is that if Christ has done that for me, how I long for other people to know the truth and the power of that. He became secure and he longed to share it with other people. I remember before Christmas I went to um, the Cayman Islands to visit the folks in, uh, in Denise's church. They've just come back from there. And the folks there asked if I would pray for them. So it was a scary thing. It's like, how many people were there? About 500 people and they had a little interview we watched a little video that Richard had done about Rotherham and then Pastor T Pastor Thabiti said would you pray for us and here's me from Little Rotherham praying for these dear Christians in the Cayman Islands and I remember as I, as I stood there in the church the image that came into my mind I don't know if you in Denise remember this was of God's love like a massive jug of water And God pouring his grace into the world. The exuberance of it. The thing about water is, you know, it splashes everywhere, doesn't it? And as God pours his grace into this world and it fills our little cups, that overflowing grace comes, it splashes down, it fills our cup, it overflows, it goes everywhere. Water splashing, overflowing it can't help but cascade. What I wanted to pray for them was that they would so know what Paul needed, the grace of God flowing into their lives, that it would just naturally flow out of them. Is that not our prayer for for ourselves here, T? Last week, here's where the misunderstanding can come. Last week, we read, in part, from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, One Corinthians chapter nine. Let's let's just uh, go back there just for a minute. We were talking about fighting, and I I just want to illustrate this this idea of security and sharing from Paul's life. One Corinthians chapter nine, verse twenty-four. We read from. Paul's trying to inspire them, and he says to them, "Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize?" Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. I read, uh, this is the Isthmian Games near Corinth. They used to get a crown of celery. Imagine that. A crown of celery. I think later on it turned into pine leaves. But I, I wondered how they made a crown of celery. Sometimes when you leave it in the fridge for a bit, it goes soft, doesn't it? Maybe you can weave it a bit more then. But they, they give the winner a crown of salary. Some of them got a bit of money sometimes as well. So he says here, everyone, what is it? They, they do it to get a crown that will not last. I mean, salary, it does go off after a while. They couldn't even take photographs then, could they, as well? So, for posterity. Um, Paul says, we do it to get a crown that will last Forever. Paul urges them to fight and strive not to get a gold medal or a celery crown in the Olympics, but to get a crown that will last forever. What is the crown that Paul desires? I I think when we read those verses, we tend to read that and think, well, it's the reward of heaven, isn't it? God is saying, one day, Paul, you will hear Christ say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. And that'll be the crown the reward in heaven. I know there's a lot of truth in that, but I'm not sure that it is that individualistic. And we, maybe we need to work a little harder. It's not so explicit in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, but actually for Paul, it is all about the joy. Just look at verse 23. The verse before this paragraph about striving, fighting, running, racing. Paul says, I do all this for the sake of the gospel. Why? That I may share in its blessings. I may share in its blessings. Christ has saved me. I know something of the blessings of the gospel. What I want to do is to share in those blessings all of my striving." all of my fighting, running, racing, all these metaphors, it is all about the joy. Everything I do, Paul is saying, is for the sake of the gospel so that I may share in its blessing. One writer says this about Paul, the most beautiful thing in my life, the joy that set before me, this great passion which is to have other people enjoy what I'm enjoying. This is my ultimate wealth. This is my ultimate status. This is my ultimate thing that I have in Jesus Christ. What it does is make me want to increase the community of people who enjoy that, who can sit there along with me and say, isn't he magnificent? Security. Sharing. So Paul could write to Christians in Philippi in Philippians chapter 4 verse 1 and say you whom I love and long for my joy and crown and that wasn't just a mistake because we could read again what Paul said to Christians in Thessalonica even more explicitly what is our hope? What is our joy? What is the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. What is his crown? His crown is the people who are coming to share in the blessing that he's come to know. It is all about the joy. He's received grace and made it his life's mission to share that grace with others. He is secure and strong and he longs to share it. He isn't sharing the gospel in order to achieve it. He already has salvation. Everything has been given to him in Christ. But now he no longer lives for himself, but he wants it to overflow to others. The people in his churches are his crown and joy. What he loves the most is to share and spread the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, eh, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 24, I have to get some new specs. Paul sums up his ministry in a sentence when he says, and what, 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 this is a great overview of the job of a Christian reader, he says to them in Corinth, we work with you for your joy. That would be a great thing for any minister to have on a wall in his office, if he has an office. That's my job to work with you for your joy. That is his great mission, not the conclusion of logic, but the passion of his heart. His running is shaped by joy. What about you this afternoon? What is your ultimate destiny? And how are you running? Is it all about the Benjamins? Or some other thing? Or is it for you all about the jury? I I don't know if you thought I would preach a different sermon today. A new destiny. He's going to preach about heaven, surely. Well, If heaven is anything, surely it is all about the joy. The joy of security and the joy of a shared experience of God's grace. Saying that your destiny is heaven is the same thing as saying that your destiny is joy. Which is the same thing as saying that you are secure and free to enjoy God's grace with other people. Is that not a great destiny? Where are you running to? And how are you running? Just as we close, can I be really simple? We're coming to the end of our little series. In the end, there are really only two destinies. The Bible does not teach karma. It doesn't teach cycles of reincarnation. It doesn't teach purgatory second chances where you can page your own sins in order to clean yourself up to get into heaven. What does the Bible teach? The Bible teaches Christ as the secure son of God who shares his overflowing life with sinful people like you and me. There's only two destinies. You can either refuse him and strive to achieve happiness by your own efforts but in the end, you will lose him and it will end in tears. Or you can receive him and embrace him and know his joy-giving, life-transforming power. In the end, life is either all about you or it's all about God. There's only two destinies. I want to urge you Come and trust Christ. And as you do, you'll be able to stand with a new identity. You'll be able to walk with God through all the ups and downs of life. You'll be able to fight with new purpose and energy by His spirit. and you will be able to run with joy towards joy because of Christ. And for those of you who are Christians, as you live as a Christian, I really want to pray that God's word would stir your heart because the key here is to is worship, isn't it? That God's word would stir our hearts to worship him so that his grace would overflow and God's joy would be made complete as we share that with others. I want to uh, close our, our series by reading some verses from Peter a disciple of Jesus this is the last thing we'll be I I want to I think these words sum up the new life that we've been thinking about how to approach it and they also end with a great glorious destiny so I want to leave these words with you take these take these words from the Bible into the next phase in your life meditate on them drink them in and let them fuel your worship 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness through these He has given us His very great and precious promises So that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone doesn't have them, he is short-sighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It's all about the joy. Amen. We're going to sing hand back over to him. Thank you, Sam.